Hello, listeners. Today, we're going to be conjuring some space magic because today's guest is the cosmic witch herself, Susan Demeter, author of the book Cosmic Witch, experiencer of high strangeness, one of the contributors to Dr. Jack Hunter's new book, Deep Weirds, and even a former UFO researcher for the Canadian military. Yes, but nowadays Susan is actually working on experiments which attempt to conjure a fictional UFO. Yes, guys, in this episode we're gonna be discussing the Philip experiment, but also co-creation, the symbology of UFOs, even atmospheric jellyfish, and whether UFOs are, you know, actually craft out there from the without, or maybe they are apports, ectoplasm, co-created between us and some elusive other or rather, may they be manifestations and projections from within. Finally, the long-anticipated interview with Susan Demeter. Hello, Susan. Hi. And I don't know even if my listeners know that this is long-anticipated. It is for me because ever since I heard you on Barbara's show, I was like, I need to have Susan on because there's so much we can talk about. Well, thank you so much. I'm, I'm happy to be here. And I love talking about these strange things. These are cosmic mysteries uh, yes. and, and meeting other people who are interested in our subjects. Mm -hmm. So uh, right off the bat, um, uh, you are most well known for being the Cosmic Witch and for your book, Cosmic Witch. Can you maybe tell my listeners, uh, what does Cosmic Witch mean to you? Uh, cosmic Witch basically describes um, my personal practice with witchcraft and how it was informed and inspired by my extensive experiences with the UFO phenomena. And I mean, these are two subjects that are, are pretty weird on their own for, I guess, the mainstream, but to put them together, I think is, is somewhat uh, a new or novel for a lot of people. Although I have heard from other practitioners, ma magical practitioners, after they've come across my, my ideas on UFOs and witchcraft, and they've said, you know, I've, I've had UFO experiences and I've, I've never really put that together. But, but yeah, I, I, I describe in part my experiences with UFOs and, and I name them as initiations. Uh, I talk a bit about how I had experiences with these little beings as a child, and I really didn't have a, a label for them. I thought they were ghosts. I was quite frightened and disturbed, as, as often initiations can be quite frightening and painful. Mm -hmm. um, and then later on, my experiences as an adult and being able to sort of synth these things together with my spirituality and what I feel in some ways is my, my life's work which is actually more oriented towards UFOs. I spent decades um, as well as being a UFO experiencer as a UFO researcher and kind of a boots on the ground investigator of spook lights, as well as talking to people, many, many people about their experiences in a way to create a database and do my own research, but as well as it was cathartic for me as I learned about my own experiences um, through my research as well. And most of my li listeners would not maybe be aware just how 
cool you are. So you essentially <laughs> researched UFOs for the Canadian military in some capacity. Uh, yeah, that was part of my work. So I, I initially struck out on my own in the 1990s uh, with a website called Pararesearchers of Ontario uh, with a, a group of uh, other young women at the time investigating a spook light in Ontario. And it kind of branched off as people started writing to us and I began investigating UFOs. And then in about the mid 2000s, I was approached by a, a friend of mine who is a professor with the Defense Studies Department of uh, the Canadian uh, Military College. And, uh, and he asked me to work on, on UFOs with him, like to create a database for the Canadian military on official and non-official responses from various military internationally to UFOs. Uh, so we did that. And then I helped him with the research and editing of his book, which is Illuminations. Mm -hmm. And what we do is we uh, explore the UFO through the lenses of uh, parasociology or parapsychology. So we've, we take, um, we created a model and from that model, Model, looked at some more famous UFO cases, such as the Belgian wave and the concurrent Russian UFO wave in um, the early 1990s in Europe and Russia, and compared them to what was happening in the world or in, in, in Europe at that time, and noted the fact that, you know, as we had the Berlin Wall come down, as the Soviet Union began to collapse, you had these two major UFO waves, you know, in, in the Western part of, of Europe, you had these UFOs, which were very, very well documented documented at the time by not only ufologists, but police, by military, by all these various bodies. And these UFOs were basically appearing over NATO headquarters. <laughs> So, so we know we draw we drew parallels to that. We thought, you know, like can you imagine living through these times, um, mm -hmm. and particularly in Russia as Soviet Union was collapsing, and the fear and the anxiety and wanting to know what what's going to happen. And all of a sudden, you have these UFOs like appearing almost as like a you know help us like you know over NATO, right? So this this is kind of the basis of the book Illuminations is looking at UFOs from a potentially very different kind of an angle than what is usually the ETH or, you know, for the skeptical people that, you know, it's all null, it's nothing. It's, you know, people are mistaking airplanes or whatever. So mm -hmm. that was based, the basis of my work for the Canadian military was to create this database, to talk to witnesses, and then to help Eric with this publication of Illumination. And is this the first time that you started to maybe perceive the UFO phenomenon as as a psychosocial or a parapsychological thing rather than an ETH thing? Or have you been on board with that like since forever? Oh, I was I was open towards that since forever. I did, I, and I still, I can't say for certain it's not the ETH or, or ET or that there isn't somehow an extraterrestrial kind of intelligence involved in all this. I certainly can't say it's not, but to me, it was unsatisfying from very early on. And I kind of realized that my my desire, which is what I would say it was to, to believe that we are not alone in the universe, and I don't believe that we are, that that fed into my sort of want for the ETH to be kind of true as to be the, the, the true origin. Of, of what's happening here. And once I, I realized that that was coming from within myself, it was much more easier to kind of free myself from the ETH and, and look mm -hmm. at all these different kind of different ideas as to what it could be, whether it's psychosocial or... Yeah, and it's also a gateway for you to maybe reframe your view of the phenomenon as something more from within rather than without, because all nuts yeah. and bolts people uh, think that it is 100% from without. It is something out there that we can hunt down. <laughs> 
Yeah, and and I really think that a lot of that is either coming from the desire for it to be that or from people that maybe haven't had very close encounters or close encounters that involve high strangeness. Because once you start having those type of deep weird, let's call them experiences, mm-hmm. mind-boggling experiences, you realize that no, the, the absurdity of it to be the ETH is just, it's like, it, like I said, it could be, this could be some sort of alien in the broadest sense of the term intelligence, and it may be coming from some other planet or whatever, I don't know. But I don't think it is the simplistic Star Trek kind of idea of, you know, we have a universe full of various beings and they're visiting in spaceships and, you know, doing this really bad kind of, you know, medieval surgery, even though Mm -hmm. they can traverse the stars and whatnot on people and stealing cattle and whatnot. It just, it doesn't make any sense to me. So Yeah, but I see all all of those tropes that you brought up as kind of Mm -hmm. us reflecting ourselves upon uh, a theoretical alien race. Yeah. Exactly. Because we ask, like, what what do we do with with animals? Like, mm-hmm. we shoot down uh, bears with tranquilizers and pick them up and tag them. Like, certainly other races will do that. I'm thinking we're only saying that because we are the ones who would do that and we are reflecting ourselves upon the universe. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, and, and that may be the case. Like, I'm, I'm also a fan of the work of Rupert Sheldrake and his ideas that patterns propagate throughout the universe. And there very well could be other humans and they may have similar motivations I don't know but it's just to me it doesn't like you said it this seems more like an idea of putting our own ideas or trying to you know justify our beliefs by rationalizing them based in in what we think you know an alien would do on what we as humans would do you know we mm-hmm. we, we kidnap people we torture people we enslave people you know mm-hmm. right and there's also this looming idea of if we are doing this then certainly something much more advanced than us can do the same to us so it's mm-hmm. like a guilt manifesting yeah Exactly. It could be, you know. Now, I wanted to ask you, so you brought up when you had these little people encounters, you did not really have labels to assign to them because uh, I'm assuming you grew up in an urban area in Toronto. I grew up in a fairly urban area of Toronto. And I guess my my experiences were what I could pull from as a child uh, was more like from the ghost perspective. So I assumed that these these little beings that would appear sometimes like on my bed at night were ghosts or something like of that nature. And they were very frightening to me. Um, and I would see them as solid as I would, you know, my mom. Like they weren't, but I, I knew they were not normal. And I talk about in my book how isolating these types of experiences can be because if you go and try and tell your friends at school, you know, I have this little being sitting on my bed and he's scaring me at night, they're going to, you know, they're going to make fun of you, right? (laughs) Like, Uh yeah, people don't understand these things. So again, like I I liken them to uh, an initiation that can be very painful and certainly unwanted as a child. And then even as a teenager and as as a younger woman, I I started getting into psychology and, and and trying to figure out, you know, what what was going on with me as a child. And, you know, I, I tried to rationalize it as, you know, imaginative thinking or things that came out of, of childhood trauma. And then I saw a UFO. Okay. <laughs> like 
I mean, a close range UFO with mm-hmm. my uh, with my brother in law. It was like, no, this is this is real. This is not an, a childhood imagination thing. So it had it, then it got me to rethink all again what had happened to me as a child. And, and I discuss that in the book. And I also discuss other things as well. I talk a little bit about the history of Western witchcraft. And I, and I talk about, uh, you know, uh, where I think the mechanisms of witchcraft come from, things of that nature as well. So and a little bit of activism in there as well. So how old were you when you had this first UFO experience? As an adult? Or as a child? Oh, so this th- was this as an adult or as a child? I'm th- talking about the experience with the red UFO. Oh, that I was an adult. I was 23 then. Mm-hmm. And so I was I was 23 years old. And I saw this red pulsing UFO that was octagonal kind of shape. And it was hovering over a nuclear power plant. And I saw it, it was about one o'clock in the morning on November 4th, 1990. And, uh, and I had been watching an Elvira, <laughs> Elvira <laughs> Mistress of the Dark film with my, with my brother-in-law. My, my husband at the time and my sister were both asleep and we, were, we stayed up and we were watching this movie. And I got up to, I lived in a, in a 10th floor condominium apartment building that was out facing out towards the lake at that time. And I could see the power plant out in the distance. And I got up and I, I went to go lock the door because I had small children at the time. I had two babies. And I, I always, it was my habit to make sure that that balcony door, the, the glass doors were all locked. So I went out and I saw this thing as I went to lock the door and it was pulsing. And I'd never seen anything like that before. And I went out kind of in my pajamas and bare feet in November. It was cold winter time. I didn't care. Yeah. I was kind of almost mesmerized, pulled out towards it. And I could see it. And I, I was quickly running through things in my mind. Is this a plane? Is this a helicopter? It's none of these things. It's it's not. And I called out to my brother-in-law to come out onto this this terraced balcony. And he saw it too. And we're looking at it. And, and I'm like, what is this? And he just grabbed my arm and he said, I think we're seeing a UFO. And hmm. it was just it it start it was pulsing and then it seemed to implode upon itself and shoot up straight in the sky. And this was 1990, so there was no internet. To, and and at the time, I hadn't really been interested in UFOs before that. I was very interested in ghosts and astrology and other things, but mm-hmm. not necessarily UFOs. After that, I, I I took out every book I could in the library on UFOs, and I, I I didn't know what I didn't. We sat up all night, like we didn't get any sleep that night. We were just talking, talking, talking. Like, what was this? And what do you do with this? Like, who? You know, I didn't know what a MUFON was or anything. And like I said, no internet. So you know, what are you going to do with this? You can't call the cops. You can't, you know, what is this? So I, I did get the newspaper the very next morning and I, I looked to see if there was something, something happened at the nuclear plant or whatever. And no. And then, and then I, I got all these books out of the library. And a few weeks later, I kind of wrote everything down and I, I sent it to this address in Chicago to Dr. Alan Hynek. And I had no idea that he had passed away a couple of years before. <laughs> so the letter came back you know, undeliverable. And I just kind of put it away and sat with it until my kids got a little older and I got online. And I think the very first thing I typed into a search engine was UFO. There wasn't even Google at that time. But I just typed in UFO. And I found some MUFON people that way. And I kind of, and that's where it kind of began for me as, as doing research and pondering and, you know, Yes. Getting involved in the whole kind of UFO scene. Was this the first time you saw a UFO in your life? Probably not. 
but I had a lot of experiences as a child. I did have an experience as a child when I was 10, where I felt that the roof had been taken off of our house and I saw UFO ships in the sky. But again, it was so very dreamlike and you know, as I got older, I wondered, did, did this actually happen? Was I dreaming? Was this true? I saw these beings near my bed. They were kind of glowing orange. And my mother came in the room, but she didn't seem to see what I was seeing. So a lot of that stuff from childhood, I had to question, like, you know, is this, is this imagination? Where's this coming from? But then after having that first UFO experience as an adult, because I have had uh -huh. others as an adult, then I had to question all that stuff maybe there was truth to that. But before that, I can't really recall seeing a UFO or a spaceship or strange lights in the sky as a child. But I did have a lot of experiences with these strange little beings. And I talk about as well in the book how I would, you know, surround my bed with my stuffed animals and things and, you know, as, as a way to try and protect myself. And at one point, I feel I conjured up a wolf, a large wolf, which I also saw in my room that seemed to scare these beings. And as an adult, whether I want to look at it from a magical point of view or from a psychological point of view, I feel that creation of that wolf was a, a, an externalization of myself, okay? That I was finding it within myself to, to kind of take agency or take control of this and know you're going to leave me alone because these things were quite frightening, terrifying. And they left me with a lot of um, sort of issues as a young adult. I saw psychologists, I saw a psychiatrist for a little while, I, all in this kind of trying to come to grips with probably what was post-traumatic stress and other things from these childhood experiences that I had a very difficult time. Processing. I see why you define it as an initiation, because we all know in these fields that initiations are never pleasant. No, they're not. So mm. It's also funny that you bring up wolves. My name, Vuk, is mm -hmm. literally the Serbian name uh, word for wolf. I my like that. name is literally wolf. And the reason we uh, have that name in my culture is because, it, you know, at the Middle Ages, babies would die or women would have stillborn you would give uh, your son the name wolf because mm -hmm. it was believed that these baby deaths were caused by fairies or witches mm -hmm. and it was believed that wolves ward off fairies and witches that is very very interesting because in my book cosmic witch there is a chapter on the benedante which are very much like the taltosh of hungary and these were witches but they, they considered themselves sort of the good guy witches and they were shaman Shamanic shapeshifters, and they would, at, on occasion, shapeshift into wolves as part of their uh, protection rituals and their night battles with the so-called the bad witches, right? So they were uh -huh. protectors, they were healers, but one of the things they did do is shapeshift into the wolf. And uh, so I find that interesting because maybe that also goes back because, you know, Serbia is not that far yeah, <laughs> from yeah. from Slovenia and Hungary and that. And, and so maybe that goes into the more ancient traditions and, and that of, of these witches that go back yes. way back into ancient times uh, of Europe. Slavic folklore is something I really need to look into, <laughs> but I need to find, <laughs> you know, sources in my own language. Yes, yes. 
definitely. Yeah. But it's very interesting when you break down all of this and realize that there are these symbols with uh, commonalities between them in various different cultures. And uh, this is how you got interested in the more parapsychological side of the UFO phenomenon, because from what I, what I understand, you see all of this as symbology. I do in part. It's one of the areas that I do explore, and I and I want to do a little bit more of that in, in the coming uh, years is, is to create future models that I can kind of put against different UFO, you know, well-documented or maybe more famous cases, or even uh, in the case of with um, ghosts and hauntings. I, I recently had republished uh, through Brent Rain's publication, Alternate Perceptions, my kind of examination of the woman in black. And that's a very famous, uh, not to be confused with the film, but it may have been inspired by this famous uh, ghost and mm -hmm. hauntings case in England that was looked at by the SPR and was very well documented because the primary witness was actually a young female scientist as she was studying medicine at the time. And she did everything she could to try and trap this ghost and document this ghost. <laughs> so um, that was haunting her home. And it was this apparition of this woman in black. And I kind of um, took a little bit of Jungian psychology and sociology and that to try and examine what this apparition could have meant as far as a symbolically a woman in black, you know, being a widow mm -hmm. coming out of Victorian times or in, the, in that era. And this seems to coincide in her lifetime, this young woman with the first wave of feminism. And so I go from there and I kind of break it down into why this apparition really could have been an outward expression of this young woman's place in life and within her family that because again this is very well documented about you know who she was and and being a young medical student in a time where there were there were really no female doctors you know there this was a new this was very very new late 18th century England and so I, I kind of do the same thing with the UFO stuff and I guess as well like this kind of comes out of the idea that when I go back to that very first UFO sighting and it was like a red octagon over the nuclear power plant. In part, I think the shape of it being a giant stop sign in the sky might have had relevance to me uh, on a very deep and personal level at that time. And certainly after when I would talk to UFO witnesses and they would tell me, you know, they'd be at a certain place in their life, you know, because I would ask them these questions like, what were you doing in the days leading up to this UFO sighting? Or you know, what were you thinking about just before you saw the UFO? Which is the questions that are not, you know, traditionally asked by the mainstream UFO ufologists. They want to know yeah. what the shape is, what the color is, what the time was. I want to know what the person was thinking, what they were doing, what they were feeling. And very often they would say, you know, I was compelled almost to look at this point in the sky. Sometimes it, you know, it comes at a point that that's very you know emotional or it's 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 something that kind of gives a person hope or you know so that's why i started looking at that kind of idea of you know what does it mean to the person and is there something within the shapes or the colors that could be meaningful you know yes, on, on a yes. much deeper level Th this resonates with me a lot because I I'm I'm relatively new to this 14 stuff I come from a biology background mm -hmm. so you know hard science yes <laughs> but I, I was always a cryptid kid but mm -hmm. I know especially after you know having a biological education like things like Bigfoot and Essie they're not biological things. Mm -hmm. because I know biology. 
Yeah. But then what are they? Why are we still talking about them after so many centuries? Why mm-hmm. are they, they a looming presence in the public consciousness? Yeah. And what does it even mean for something to be real or to exist? Because we are talking about it. It is like a self-perpetuating mythology. We keep talking about it. We keep reflecting this symbol back and forth and making a pop cultural thing out of it from something that does not exist biologically. Mm-hmm. So I got interested in this whole I- idea of the paranormal maybe being some kind of living symbology or living folklore that is self-perpetuating, that people are influenced and then sent down rabbit holes to create these mythologies. Yeah, I think that's absolutely um, plausible and relevant. And, you know, it it, it really seems to be that way that um, we have these experiences and we tell our stories and it is like, it it is a living folklore, Mm -hmm. you know, as, as these experiences experiences as well they they change over time like i i really think that the ufo for instance the something in the sky is probably very much related to what people would see as dragons or chariots or the blessed uh, mother uh, mm-hmm. and other types of things throughout you know centuries and centuries there's a, a castle very close to us where i am here in in north italy that has a tradition of dragons and they even have a large dragon in their tower, which is really cool. It's like almost two stories tall. But along with this story comes um, this dragon tradition comes the story of the priest and the priest is called in and he has this almost magical device that he uses to bring down the dragon. And I remember listening to this story while I was visiting this castle and I'm thinking this is kind of like a medieval version of, you know, the military shoot downs <laughs> that you hear about of these these alien spacecrafts right I mean, yeah. and then it's all covered up but in this case the the this part of this magical weapon that this priest was wielding is 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 preserved in a in a museum you know and it's it's become like a you know like a relic like a, a almost a holy relic of this yes. down of the dragon that was uh menacing this village and you know what's <laughs> very interesting <laughs> what's interesting is how the form of the phenomenon is always shaped by the historical and cultural and social context you are residing in at the time. Let's say, so you you did not have any kind of labels to attribute to these beings that you were encountering as a child because you were growing up in an urban area of Canada. Mm-hmm. But let's say if you were growing up in Italy or if you were growing up in Ireland or, you know, a different culture, even a different time, Mm -hmm. you would maybe have labels available to you from your culture. Let's say in Ireland, you would say, oh, these are fairies. Yeah. So how would that then shape your transformation, your metamorphosis throughout life of forming your views on the phenomenon? Like maybe you are viewing the phenomenon now as a more vague, more parapsychological thing because you grew up in a culture that does not have labels that you would very early on attribute to these things. Yeah, exactly. Um, For me, it was more relating them to the dead because, again, growing up in the environment I did, my sort of only, you know, because my parents, they were open to these things later on in life, discussing these things and from their various perspectives. But as a little kid, the only thing that I could think of that was outside of the norm is what I was seeing in Scooby-Doo. So, (laughs) I mean, Mm -hmm. like... When these beings showed up, I just assumed they were like ghosts and they scared me. So they had to be like 
creepy ghost things. That's like what I thought they were. I don't know if it would have, I mean, if I was growing up in a culture where this was more accepted and that they were considered to be non-threatening or beneficial or, you know, more acceptable as part of our reality, I don't know if it would have been such a painful or frightening experience to be fair, but they're startling. It would still be outside of our known consensus reality. So I would still think, you know, they would inspire shock. Yeah. Yeah. I want to ask you, so you are now in Italy Mm -hmm. and uh, what is it like uh, going from high strangeness you're experiencing in North America to now Italy? Are you experiencing any high strangeness now living in Italy that is completely different than anything you experienced before? Um... The, the spirits, the local spirits here, uh, genus loci, like spirit of place, is different. In Canada, I found a lot more hostility in nature, a lot more less. It's a lot more wild there than here, where I find here the spirit of place and the local spirits are much more attuned with the people. And the people perhaps are much more attuned with their local spirits. That's something that's different. Uh, and I have tried to, you know, when I go out, I I make regular offerings and things. I try to be very respectful of the culture because I'm not Italian. My background is, well, it's Canadian, but it's German and Hungarian and Ukrainian. I'm learning a lot more and through my husband about the folklore of the place because we're we're also living very rural, which is different from like I come from a very urban Toronto megalopolis to a tiny ancient village on top of a mountain so that's different but the light phenomena the I encounter less ghosts here than I did in Canada maybe that's because there's a lot more you know there's praying in that like when a person passes away like there's a lot more going on here as being a Catholic country you know the priests I guess are are taking people to where they need to go or praying for them. So I'm encountering less ghosts. And I think, like I said, I feel very comfortable with the nature here. I think it's, it loves its people. At least this is what I feel on my specific mountain, that it's it's more peaceful, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. Yeah. And I do think it is much more nuanced uh, than yeah. we can like share here, because there are elements that are, are from you, from within. There yeah. are elements that are from without. There are. Yeah. It is all a co-creation of various different fra- factors from yourself that you bring there to a new place and mm-hmm. uh, the factors that are already there all of this interacting to mold something exactly but i think i think definitely when we're going into a new place we have to be very respectful of what was before and what is now right so i i do try to like i said i'm i'm learning the folklore and the, and some of the magical practices here and i'm trying to be more in tune with my exact home which is it's we are by european standards very rural <laughs> you know i mean like from a canadian <laughs> point of view it's like you know we have vast vast like you know thousands of kilometers of nothing or there's yeah. not a human soul so that's i, what I, I heard you say that. on a podcast that your current village has like a population of 14 people in the winter time yeah in the summer it get, get, get balloons up a little bit there's people have a lot of summer homes here and we're in the middle of a, a nature preserve so you know it is it's very rural in comparison to where i was coming from in toronto but yeah but it's nice it's it's peaceful and it allows me to contemplate and uh, work on my magical practice and and my experiments and things like that so uh, I already had Dr. Jack Hunter on my show, and mm-hmm. he announced his next book that's coming out later this month. And for the listeners, we're recording this in early January. 
<laughs> um, the book is titled Deep Weird, and you are one of the contributors. Yeah, I was so honored to be uh, to be included with all these wonderful people, and you know that they're thinking on this this really wild, you know, Fortean uh, subject. Like, I mean, we're really exploring like what's even beyond high strangeness. Like, when the boggle threshold is like definitely breached, like. Mm -hmm. What the heck is this? <laughs> and, and, yeah. and I, I was perplexed when I heard about the title of the book because, like, to me, deep weird. I'm thinking, well, should, shouldn't that already be the norm? If we're talking about the weird and high strangeness, shouldn't we be talking about it in a very in-depth way? Yeah, I think so. I think so. But this is like, I think what Jack is getting at here is the idea that, okay, there is there is a point where uh, Jeff Kripal talks about making the cut. When you're you're looking at these strange, strange experiences, people tend to have their boggle threshold. So in other words, they'll accept a UFO. But mm -hmm. if a person says that they see that UFO and it lands and Bigfoot walks out, that's too much. Okay, that's, that's beyond. That's you know, something that some most people I think would would not accept or they'd have a hard time accepting. Mm -hmm. So we're going that extra kind of mile and saying, all right, we are going to not make this cut or we're going to make this cut, but we're going to accept this very strange thing. And we're not going to kind of put our thoughts and notions of where it may originate from in this type of acceptance towards examining it or looking at it. So making that cut. And that's where deep weird goes because yeah, there's like people can say that, you know, they've seen a ghost and some people will accept that, but they'll, they'll never accept a UFO because to them, well, okay, the spirit of the dead. Well, yeah, of course, but UFOs and aliens, that's, that's too weird. Or But, but see, th those are assumptions, uh, seeing yeah. a ghost and assuming that it's a, the spirit of a dead person. And then assuming that UFOs are in any way, shape or form alien related. So yeah. you are denying your assumption. Yeah. But I mean, people do do that. Like they, they will accept certain other people's experiences. Like if you are relating an experience, they will accept to a certain point, even 14 people, people that are interested in this, they tend to accept only up to a certain point. Like, yes. you know, like, oh, this person, you know, he's, he is a pilot who has seen a TikTok and he is this, so he must be credible and this must be true. But, you know, if that TikTok, TikTok was seen by somebody else and it landed and, you know, little elves popped out and started mm -hmm. making pancakes for everybody, that can't be true. That's too crazy for me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Susan, to be to be frank, I uh, <laughs> talked with Barbara Fisher uh, yeah. for three hours last night. Yeah. We mentioned you a few times, but I find this very synchronistic. So we started <laughs> off the episode talking about UFO Twitter and disclosure bros and stuff like that. Yeah. And how everybody is obsessed with disclosure for, from the government. And I'm like, why? Why, why <laughs> do we care about the government telling us anything? Because we're talking about experiences. We should be talking with the pancake Joes of the world. Exactly. Exactly. And honestly, I find that because I have worked with the military, I've worked well with the military college, my professor, you know, had a very, very high security clearance. And believe me, we looked. But the fact of the matter is, is that I find with a lot of these pe disclosure people, they have no experience with the military or they have no experience with government. Okay. Because I mean, these types of things that do you really think this could they could contain a secret like this? No. 
I mean, like everybody talks. These are all human beings. There's a lot of bureaucracy. There's a lot of mess and things that go on behind the scenes in any governmental office. But the idea that they're keeping this big, huge secret from us all, no. And the fact of the matter is, is that these things are not secret. They are flying. They are in the air. They have been seen by hundreds of thousands of people, you know, of all different kind of backgrounds and educational backgrounds and, and cultural backgrounds. And, you know, and, and it, it's not hiding, whatever it is. So what, what do they think that the government knows more than the experiencer? This is what I'd like to say. And if you feel like, especially when you look at the history of uh, the United States government, and I'm going to, can I give a, a plug here to my friend Greg Bishop's right. book, um, Project Beta, as one example of how they have played dirty pool with this subject. Mm -hmm. Okay. Why would you trust anything they have to say? Like, I mean, really? Exactly. Uh, I see <laughs> yeah. the only information we can get from the government is the narrative that they want to tell us, you yeah. know? Okay, yeah. so uh, it's always, oh, national security risk, but I see UFOs as butterflies, you know, as these beautiful, delicate things flying around and inspiring us. But mm -hmm. even if you film a butterfly from a certain camera angle, you can make it out to be a terrifying monster. Of course. Of course. And, um, and maybe they are because for some people, they are terrifying. But at the same point, it's like my personal experience with the military, the Canadian military, and, and what we were doing with it is that you have people who are uh, not interested at all in the subject, people who are very, very interested in the subject. Some of these people have had experiences with UFOs themselves. And if they can get their own little private projects off the ground, they'll do so. And some of these people have high ranking, you know, these people could be generals or colonels or whatever, but they have mm -hmm. a personal interest. Okay. Then there's the vast majority of government employees and including military personnel that don't care about this subject at all. You know, they yeah. care about their day-to-day -day life, what their family's doing, how much money they have in the bank, who's playing it in the game tonight, you know, these kind of more mundane life things. They don't care about UFOs. And most people don't unless they have an experience themselves. Vast majority of people don't. But if you look at the history of UFOs, particularly in the United States, they have certain governmental branches have used this topic to, for their own reasons, which have nothing to do with aliens and actual UFOs and everything to do with trying to flush out Russian spies or whatever. And it, and, and it takes us down rabbit holes that have nothing to do with what people are experiencing and seeing in the skies or you know, if they're if they're having more deeper experiences with the the so-called pilots of these things, right? Um, uh -huh. It's to me, it's just a dead end. It's it's the same same thing. History repeats itself over and over. You know. I'm very interested to hear your view on this. So let's say somebody sees a flock of geese in the mm -hmm. sky and thinks that it's a UFO. They don't know it's a flock of geese and have an experience and maybe mm -hmm. have trauma because of this experience, but it's just a stupid flock of geese. Is How do this... we know it's a flock of geese? But let's say it is. Let's say we, we experimentally <laughs> do that okay. and in induce a real experience with a flock of geese. Is this a genuine UFO experience, even though it's not what we would, we would perceive as a genuine UFO? Well, for me, it's a genuine UFO experience because these people are having an, a reaction to something and it's inspiring them that they don't know what it is, right? I mean, yes. the, UFO ex the UFOs themselves could have a truly mundane experience that we just don't know what they are. 
right? Mm-hmm. But they're having that same effect. So, But see, I, I see what we should be studying when studying UFOs and the UFO phenomenon is mm-hmm. not the UFOs themselves, what nuts and bolts people do. It's mm-hmm. the people who are having the UFO experience regardless of what they actually saw. Yeah. And that's that's where I was at as well. Even with my work with Eric when we back in, in the, you know, we were doing this study for the military is looking at change dynamics and transformation and how the, these experiences affect people's lives and greater societies and institutions like the military itself, right? Like they don't just have individual, you know, impact. They can have impact on the military, on societies, you know? Mm -hmm. But uh, the military is composed of people and it is people having the experiences. Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, that's the thing. Like you can can look at it as, as individuals, as individual people, as groups of people, as societies, as, you know, as villages, as, as countries. I find this far more interesting so yeah in answer in answer to your question i don't care if it's a flock of geese per se it's it's how it's affected this person exactly that that's what attracts me to the 14 and the paranormal coming from a biology scientific background i don't believe necessarily in entities out there or that you know ufos are craft or stuff like that but Mm -hmm. i do believe it is a genuine phenomenon more like a psychosocial phenomenon and that it is a phenomenon that can uh, shape and reformat society and culture Mm mm-hmm so how like how real is something that can completely change the behavior of a whole mass of people i'd say like this is the question of religion i'm an atheist so i don't mm-hmm. believe in in religious teachings but mm-hmm. i do believe religion is very powerful because it sways public perception and behavior of whole you know societies and cultures so in that sense religion and god are real because we make mm-hmm. them real we make them real by reacting to them and then by uh, changing our behavior as a result yeah of course of course, you know. Now, I, I, I'm not, I'm not an atheist. I do believe that we have other beings around us, but of course, our beliefs shape them. And so, uh, I, I, I should say I'm an atheist in the sense that I don't believe in a Judeo-Christian God, but I, I do believe maybe spirits can be a, you know, thing. Yeah. And, well, you know, I, be- I overarching consciousness. I- yeah, no, I believe I believe their God exists, but I believe that they shape their God as well. So mm-hmm. I'm a little bit different. I just I don't, you know, I'm I'm pagan. So. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, but I, I, I do I do feel that we are co-creating with these things and we feed into them and they feed into us. And when we are having these relationships with them. That go- goes into the whole Gaia. Like when, when I talk about Gaia theory, anybody can say, oh, this guy is saying that, you know, the Gaia theory, the Gaia consciousness is behind everything. No, it's just a model of thinking. It's more of a philosophical thing. Mm-hmm. The whole point of the Gaia theory is that life forms change their environment and then their environment mm-hmm changes them and so on and so on it's a mutual Mm co-creation and we can perfectly use that biological concept which is a proven fact to talk even about 14 and the paranormal because i see the 14 and the paranormal is something that we do not understand that is maybe left vague so we Mm -hmm. should maybe use models that are already established in what we know to be reality or in science to maybe help understand the 14 sure i mean there there is there is also a physical reality to this because there's physical 
possible after effects or mm-hmm. there's things. And, you know, when I was a, a, a still actively investigating UFOs and even ghosts and hauntings or, or cryptids or whatever, I would ask, like, did you see a shadow? You know, is it breaking light? Did you hear a sound? You know, all of these things are physical effects, right? So it does, these things affect our physical environment more so than than perhaps people might think so therefore yeah of course like there is a physical reality and from that you know we do have our sciences that can play a role in the examination of these things because there is something physical at least partially so for a time with a lot of these things like i said the the beings that i saw and even when i see ghosts of what are are dead people i see them as solid I don't see them as sort of see-through-y, whimsical-y kind of things. I see, saw them as like solid as I would see you if we were sitting in the same room together. Uh-huh. When I saw, in 2001, I saw what appeared to be a spacecraft, very close range with a friend of mine. It, it was as solid looking as a car might be, you know, <laughs> like, I mean, there was, it was solid. Yes. So I, I, I assume that sciences can play a role in at least partially maybe trying to uncover some of the mechanisms of whatever it is that you know is forming these things because you know with ufos sometimes you know they get radar hits on them yes yes i cannot deny the physicality or you know manifestation that's what perplexes me because i i have come into this field with the notion that everything is from within that it is a psychosocial phenomenon and the more i look into these things the more i see wow there is some kind of physicality but also it's very nuanced like are we talking about physical phenomena or perceptual phenomena like all we are reading and talking about is somebody saw something appearing as such let's say if we talk about the sky and say the sky is blue because we see it and it looks blue but in reality the sky is not blue at all it's an optical illusion okay yeah well that's the thing and this is this is the thing with the physical traces of the ufos okay Mm -hmm. that you can have um you know uh and this is here's something for you with the the social psycho the psychosocial sorry i need another coffee (laughs) Um, (laughs) you know what i'm trying to say here all right there's a famous case in canada it was in the 1960s uh involved a a landed ufo where a young boy uh touched it and it left some burns on his hands some radiation i Uh think burns uh there was a ufo group that went out and took samples from this scorched area where this ufo had supposedly landed and some other dark uh liquid that uh you know apparently was coming from the ufo or was part of the ufo it turned out to be oil like just oil and when you look at the time frame so it's just mundane. It's nothing from outer space. But if you look at the time frame of when this happened with this child, there was something, some sort of a, a, an oil crisis going on or something going on with refineries in Canada in this location very near to where this child had this experience. So again, we can kind of look at the social, uh, the psychosocial hypothesis mixed with some very physical side effects 
yes that were experienced with the sighting and the the interaction of this ufo and i mean jacques valet goes into this in his book trinity with paula harris mm -hmm. you know about these children and they have this experience and the whole thing seems like theater but yet there were physical effects and in fact they they even took artifacts from what they believe was this this ufo but as far as i know when you have these after effects or even like the the microchips that people say they have these these implants from the aliens when mm -hmm. these things are cut out of people they always they seem to be like detritus like stones or or pieces of dirt or wood or whatever they it's not you know there's a natural or mundane thing that goes along with it but it is physical and it it seems to be a part of this experience or with cryptids where some people will find tracks you know. Oh yeah, but I, I see that as all of those uh, parapsychological experiments where somebody would take uh, wax and then try to manifest uh, a fist print into the wax. I would say mm -hmm. maybe what's going on with Bigfoot and Bigfoot tracks is something similar to that, more it's parapsychological. It's possible, but again, these are then then we're talking about mind over matter, and there's a physical effect mm -hmm. with whatever is going on. And then if we kind of look at what you were talking about before with the living folklore, and is is there there's something perpetuating this folklore that through us and with us, what is it? And, and is it also co-creating with us these physical side effects? And these are things that can be measured. Like this is where you could come out and say, okay, like, is there higher radiation there? What's going on with these things? You know, I mean, the, all of this is good data to have as well, because it may or may not lead to something. Then that's still information. I, I'm with you. I think that we still have to begin with, with the physical, because there is a physical world and we do know a fair amount about that physical world. So when we start these things, we should try to have some grounding Mm -hmm. And I talk about that too in my magical thinking and, and, and magical lenses of experimentation in, in the Deep Weird book. We still have to be somewhat grounded in the known world, in our known reality, because there is a physical world. You know. <laughs> yes, I, I see it as let's say when you're you're trying to piece together a puzzle that has a thousand pieces, a jigsaw puzzle. Mm -hmm. You're going to look for that corner piece. That corner piece is established science. I think mm -hmm. everything science says is a hundred percent true, but it's only you know zero point zero 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 one percent of the actual truth. Mm -hmm. that we know. So it's that one corner piece. And then you need to go from there because that corner piece is the tether and maybe the way you can frame what you're going to do further, how you're going to piece together the puzzle. Sure. Sure. You, you should always start with, with what is known or what is acceptable when you're building these types of models. And then to also be honest with ourselves in that we really don't know. Mm -hmm. um, and when you start to believe that you know something then you're probably on the wrong track when it comes to these things <laughs> exactly <So. laughs> it, and it is the, that corner piece we we know that a corner piece needs to be in the corner that's the only thing that we know yeah. every other piece is just gonna be us experimenting what works exactly and taking from it what what we what we can like in part i i i did a presentation for asap not too long ago the um the british group and i talk about the importance of the journey 
in regards to my spook light investigations, which I began in Canada. And then I, I more recently did some work here in Italy um, alongside uh, my husband, who's an astrophysicist, who's looked into a lot of these uh, spook light cases and in particular has Stalin. But there are locations here in Italy where they occur. And then I talk about how in some ways for me, what's more important is how these investigations informed me and, and shaped who I am and the journey and what I've learned along the way and people I've met than actually trying to resolve what these spook lights are. So I think that's something that's very important too, that people have to realize, even if we never fill out that puzzle, if we only ever have that little corner piece, there's still more to this and, you know, we shouldn't be discouraged. Right. Yes. Um, yeah. And even, even if we uh, fill out one corner of the whole puzzle, we may eventually realize, wow, I got this completely upside down. <laughs> <laughs> If 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 we should be so lucky to to even resolve that, yes, like, I I don't know. Like I I just I think that people have their own different ideas and conclusions, and there's probably little kernels of truth in everything. Exactly. This is why on my show I like to promote hoaxers and hoaxing. I think hoaxing <laughs> is very very important for th this field because it doesn't matter if something is real or not. Uh, uh, hoaxers are myth makers they perpetuate mm -hmm. the phenomena they can sometimes spark real phenomena mm -hmm. but also like through hoaxing and even scamming people are kind of conduits who reflect the overarching truth in some way like even people who write fiction which is mm -hmm. you know totally made up stuff uh, have these Freudian slips of Jungian archetypes that they incorporate into their narrative that are not from them but from you know what would be a collective unconsciousness Absolutely. And I mean, fiction seems to be informing of these experiences with the mm -hmm. phenomena. I did do an experiment involving writing fictional narratives to see if it would produce something in the outer world. And it did. Okay, let's go into that. So <laughs> first off, uh, we'll, we'll, let's talk about the Philip experiment. This is something I bring up constantly on my show. And I've been looking for people who would cover this with me. And you're the perfect person, though we're not making a whole episode about that. But can you tell my listeners something about the Philip experiment? Because you're maybe the most knowledgeable person in that field I, that I know. Okay, so conjuring up Philip is a book that was written by Iris uh, Owen and Margaret Sparrow about a series of experiments in Canada, in Toronto, Canada, by the Toronto Psychical Research Society back in the 70s. And they they were coming from the idea of, as far as ghosts and hauntings were concerned, um, that they were something that was created, okay, sort of like a parapsychological, through a parapsychological lens, that this is not an outward agent or a ghost or a dead person or whatever, that these types of experiences, including apparitions, were coming from within. And to, to that end, they decided to do a series of experiments with a, a group of people who they screened to come in and sort of concentrate on what would be a fictional story that had to be fictional because they wanted to make sure that they weren't actually conjuring in a real dead person, so uh -huh. to speak. So they wanted by to have some, that. By some coincidence. 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So they wanted to make sure that this would be totally like based in psychokinesis. So A.R.G. Owen, his wife, Joel Wheaton, who's a psychiatrist, uh, who was a scientific advisor on the experiment, they screened a group of people to come in and what became a almost a mimicry of Victorian um, uh, parlor seances to see if they could produce an actual apparition. That they were not able to do, but through a series of experiments, they were able to produce psychokinetic effects such as knocks, like, you know, for yes or no, mm -hmm. um, and including levitation of a table that they were working with. Now, I became very interested in this because I found a copy of this book in a used bookstore in Toronto. And it was like, oh, wow, this is like in my hometown. And they were doing all these really cool things. And eventually I was able, fortunate enough to meet Joel Wheaton when I became so inspired that I thought I'm going to try and duplicate these experiments. I actually met one of them and, and discussed his methodology with him. So that was basically it. So what they did is they got a group of people, they screened them for any kind of psychological kind of thing issues. The one thing that they did do is they, um, as part of the screening process, is they gave um, instructions to each of the participants to pick a, ch a children's book that inspired them and to act out one of the characters. And of course, they did this to see if people had that creative ability, which they felt would enhance the sitting. So all of these people were strangers to each other. And they started off very minimalistically. They were just kind of sitting around and they were trying to do this and nothing was happening at first. They created a narrative, a story about this fictional man, Philip, who had lived in England in the Middle Ages and he had all this drama. He had a wife and he had a girlfriend and had all this drama surrounding him and whatnot. And they made him a believable character, but they made a few in his historical narrative, they made a few... Um, changes inaccuracies. in his inaccuracies in history so that they would kind of prove that you know this they weren't conjuring somebody out of reality so they did this they even drew a picture of him but things weren't they, they weren't working out at first it took them several months and then iris owen read some similar kind of experiments experimentation going on in england and they were talking about using like you know like actual Victorian type parlor seance setting. So they brought in a round table, they dimmed the lights, they put on the candles and everything, and then they started getting phenomena. So that when they got into the theater of it, when they put themselves into the mindset of that, all of a sudden, Philip starts answering them with yes and no raps, and, and then eventually with the table levitation and all these things. So they were having a lot of fun with this. It ended up being on television, okay? <laughs> like they, and they, they even went to a university in Ohio where physicists were examining and recording the raps, and like they were able to prove that no, there, there wasn't really any fakery or trickery with this that something was going on with the with the psychokinesis part anyway. They were they did want to do an apparition like that was the goal is to have Philip manifest himself. That never really happened for them, but they did go on to do other experiments as well. They did one with Lilith who was a woman from World War II and a couple of other things and they had very similar results only much quicker with other groups because they then had the methodology down where they were going to do this like as a as a proper mm -hmm. séance kind of thing. So get people in that mindset you know get them in that that zone <laughs> so something i read maybe anecdotally about the philip experiment 
is that during one summer, they paused the experiments and all of these participants, you know, were living their lives, but were experiencing poltergeist phenomena back at their homes. Yes, yes, this is true. And that became a kind of concern of mine for ethical reasons, because my purpose to redo Philip was to do redoing Philip as an alien experiment. I had to really consider, you know, because I mean, a ghost is one thing, okay, it's 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 a human being, but an alien, that's, that's weird. And people have reported horrendous experiments, our experiences with, you know, these alien beings. So I had to really kick around and I, I discussed this with with friends and, and like, how how would we do this? How would we do a narrative for an alien? You know, like, uh, is he friendly? Did he, did he crash land here and now needs our help? You know, giving, giving us power and authority to kind of help him. Uh -huh. You know, he needs us more than we need him. Power and authority to send him away kind of thing. Uh, if, if he gets troublesome and I could never really get around that. So instead I, I based my experiments around creating a UFO as opposed to an alien being. But yeah, this is, this happened with people. They recorded that, you know, they would have poltergeist activity that was occurring in their homes and that was witnessed as well by people that were living with them, their family. Yeah. Like that's why I, I didn't, you know, can, in, with these kind of considerations, you have to think as well about the ethics of, of what you're doing when you're working with other people and I you know I wouldn't want to be responsible for for instance you know creating an alien you know in the Phillips <laughs> sense and then having people go home and then someone telling me yeah my child saw this or it was you know came in through the bedroom window six months after the experiment stopped like we don't know because there's so many unknowns around this right but mm -hmm. um, this is what I think happens as well when they talk about the Skinwalker Ranch and this idea of something following hitchhiking the hitchhiking effect or whatever this has happened and it's happened in other areas and and with the Philip experiment as well that they were having this this psychokinesis in their homes. Did you ever consider conjuring a cryptid? Because I'd imagine a cryptid would be much less scary than an alien, especially if it's some kind of mundane cryptid like a fearsome critter of lumberjack lore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I've 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 thought of that as well. So it's not one I've done yet, but it is something I have thought about. Yes. Um, as, as a potential of doing that. Cause I have done like, um, things on my own things in very small group or with just one other person. And then, and then things with a larger group utilizing the internet as a way of, of getting together and being able to meditate on these things and try different experiments and creating uh, a UFO experience in another area where none of us as the group participants knew where that location was going to be and then having confirmation. So, but that's going to be part of my second book. <laughs> and do you maybe uh, include something about that in your article for Deep Weird? I do talk very little bit about it, but without much in the way of detail, simply because like I, I would, I would have liked to have written more about it, but of course being just a chapter, we're limited by length, but I did talk just a little bit about it uh, and moving forward and what I plan to do with these ideas, because I do, I do advocate for this as a, um, as a model of experimental practice, right? For people that want to study these experiments, why not do what the Owens did, you know, 
Um, mm -hmm. And others, it wasn't just the Owens, there's the Skoll experiments in, in seance in um, the UK. Uh, and there were others as well. There was ones that absolutely uh, duplicated Philip. I mean, there these are ways that we could maybe work towards a better understanding. Because I advocate, I'm the type of person because I've had these experiences that I feel, well, unlike with Jack and what Jack has done with his scholarship is it's not just an observation. He actually went and experienced himself fully immersed as an anthropologist. Yes, he, right? he was a, an active participant. Exactly, which is, is sort of new for the academy, I think, but I think this is this gives us a deeper, richer understanding, especially mm -hmm. if we can if we can ground ourselves or you know maintain our objectivity on the one hand while at the same time immersing ourselves in the experience. Yes, yes, I'm very interested to look into various different experiments of manifesting ectoplasm and apports and stuff like that because mm -hmm. I do feel it is very closely tied with all of this Philip stuff as well. It, like if you're manifesting an apparition, you're probably manifesting a sentient app or something like that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Exactly. Like, I mean, these are, if you, if we're manifesting or we're, we're, we're co-creating and that's an interesting idea as well is like, you know, with the spirits of the dead, I personally feel that we do survive bodily death in, in this is a yet another book that, that will come out eventually in a physical sense. Okay. Kind of weird, mm -hmm. but it's there. Uh, it's a hypothesis. And the fact that if we are, are helping to bring this about, then they are as well. So this this could be that, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff out there, various spirits and things like that that are co-creating with us. Oh, so we are helping them uh, stay alive after yeah. death. Yeah, mm, of course. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So for the end of the episode, I wanted to go briefly into this. I heard you on Barbara's show bring up atmospheric jellyfish, which is something that I totally <laughs> love. Yeah, yeah, no, they're they're great. They're great. So. Yeah, and and you do some have some kind of inside info from your days working as a UFO researcher in Canada regarding jellyfish in the skies. I do. I noticed that um, for me, anyway, I was getting a lot more of these exotic type oceanic like beings that are now manifesting in the sky during the mid two thousands. And I noted that at the time there was a lot more discussion in the news media and news outlets over. The the state of our oceans, particularly this large growing garbage plasticky mess in, in you know, the Pacific Ocean mm -hmm. that seems to be growing. And then soon after we had the issue with, um, you know, Fukushima. And this also really affected Canada with the tides and, and just the stuff that was coming floating into our, our shores and that. And so it was a lot in the news media. Um, I, I also know that back in those days, there were these disembodied feet. Yes in British Columbia. Yeah, which was really horrifying and scary. I think there is a natural explanation for that. Yes. Or there, you know, but but, but, but symbolically it's the ocean bringing our dead back to us. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then and then the like, you know, the idea that the oceans are in peril and and now we're having these jellyfish, these ocean creatures, you know, magnifying themselves in our skies, you know? Is mm -hmm. this is this our collective unconscious saying like or, or you know the collective consciousness saying stop we got to do something about our oceans here or help some you know and again you know are, are manifesting this in the sky 
<laughs> I mean, yeah. I, I don't know if that's the case, but to me, it made it made perfect sense at the time. You know, the, the correlation between what was happening in the news media, uh, our awareness, our, our you know, of, of the state of the oceans, maybe more than ever before, and these sea creatures that are appearing in the sky are these UFOs that are tr- definitely not spaceships, but they're... Yes. Yes, yeah. and uh, ocean. I mean, the sky has always been a kind of as above, so below situation, a reflection of the oceans. Yeah, for millennia, it has been perceived as a kind of primordial soup or something, mm-hmm. <laughs> and even it's uh, colored blue. Uh, so it can be perceived as a reflection of of the water. Now, this is not a new idea that uh, cosmic jellyfish are a thing. Uh, we know mm-hmm. of Trevor James Constable, who is mm-hmm. maybe the best known ufologist who studied this. Yes. But then when you look into his life, there are very peculiar things. So he started off in ufology channeling Ashtar. He was a mm-hmm. channeler. Mm-hmm. And then he abandoned that to go pursuing infrared photography of jellyfish in the sky. Yeah, that's weird. <laughs> and then... That's deep weird. (laughs) Yes, yes. But then uh, what he did in the 90s, so after abandoning this uh, Sky Critters Mm -hmm. stuff, he went on to try and conjure rain. He dedicated Mm -hmm. the whole rest of his life to uh, manifesting rain and was, I think, uh, part of some kind of uh, project in Malaysia where they were trying to conjure rain via some kind of gadgets to fill out a reservoir there that dried up. Well, this sounds a lot like um Willem Reich's stuff right the organ stuff like yes actually uh, constable was very interested in that stuff uh, that yeah. that is the basis of his whole theory on sky critters yeah which is super interesting yeah but but i see it as this initiation and transformation you know he was initiated into the weird by first channeling ashtar then yeah. he abandoned that to go pursue these jellyfish in the skies and then mm-hmm. that brought him to this whole business of trying to manifest rain um yeah. it's like a metamorphosis yeah, no, I love it. He's another deep weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> I feel a kinship. <laughs> but I do have this idea that maybe the jellyfish and amoebas he was photographing in the skies were probably apports manifested by him. It's quite possible. You know, I, I believe that we, we do. We do create these things, if not co-create these things with something else. Um, and probably, yeah, it's the same idea. Like I said, the the idea of the, the jellyfish that were coming from very credible witnesses of people who were seeing these things and experiencing these things. And at the same time, you have this issue with our oceans, you know, yes. and maybe people who had never considered people who never, you know, don't live along the ocean, who's never really considered it or, 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 or worried about it. All of a sudden, you know, we're seeing these things. We're hearing these things in the news and it becomes a thing. And next thing you know, it's reflected in our sky. And we do look to the sky for our saving, our saviors, our our gods and our goddesses all seem to be coming from the sky, you know, and then here you've got these jellyfish, right? But it's also we look up at the sky for wonder and imagination because we are no longer, we, we no longer get that creative spark from observing, let's say, a forest. The forest is no longer a mystery to us. Well, some of us, I mean, some of us, it's absolutely <laughs> a mystery. Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> I go out and talk to the trees all the time. They have a lot to say. They have a lot to give. Yes, yes. I. We're not the only intelligence on this planet. Yes, exactly. I think it is very sad that nowadays 
the only place for you know modern Western culture that's covered in concrete uh, to get that creative spark is to look up at the sky, the only domain that we cannot dominate. That is true. Although, as speaking as a former city dweller, there is much to be pooled in spirits in the city itself. It has its own <laughs> spirits, its own genus loci. Yes, um, I actually interviewed Morgan Daimler, uh, the fairy author. I love her. I yes. adore her. I highly endorse all her books. Her new um, book will be 21st Century Fairy. And I asked her, is there such a thing as a dumpster fairy? Mm-hmm. <laughs> because it makes sense all our food is there. So, you know, that's where all of the food offerings are. Yeah. Yeah. No, I can't wait to, to hear that. I can't wait to hear that discussion. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, the the whole discussion was actually about fairy muses and how we can maybe channel creativity from fairies. Yeah, so there there are fairies in the city for sure. Yes, yes, and it's very interesting how the phenomenon along uh, evolves alongside us. Yeah, it does. I think it's probably already it's moved away in part from the spaceships in the sky to something else. Maybe it's in the machine. Maybe it's in the computer now. I don't know. But see, so uh, going back to this, these experiments you had of conjuring a UFO, now that Nope, the movie is a thing, and now yeah. that we are, you know, revitalizing this idea of UFOs being actual animals or creatures in the sky, mm-hmm. how safe is it to conjure UFOs now? Because you can assume that people going into the experiment will now have a cultural context via at least this movie of maybe UFOs being wild creatures. They may be wild creatures, but I mean, I would find that no more um, scary than, say, you know, these space scientists that want to do these horrible experiments on us, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so it all depends. But again, like when I talk about the uh, magical model, I do emphasize that it's important that we set boundaries of what we are comfortable with of how far we want to push things and that we have to always remember we have agency to shut these things down. And I think the screening process is also very important because obviously you can't, if you're taking random people, you can't control that everybody will have the same cultural and social contexts and tools Mm -hmm. within them to interpret the narrative you're providing them the way you are planning. So you should probably screen for people who have kind of a similar uh, view on the narrative that and and when you create the, these narratives if that if you're going to try to reduplicate the philip experiment with whether it be cryptid ufo or or another type of philip you know you that the, the, the narrative you know like you have to discuss the ethics surrounding your narrative as well you know and 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 how you want to treat other people obviously because you don't want to create a situation where people end up becoming frightened or they have horrific experiences at home or whatever because to me this is a possibility mm-hmm. you know so i mean there are a lot of ethical concerns whenever you work with a group doing this type of thing you know but even if you're just you know on your own and you just want to do some experiments it's important to again set boundaries for yourself within your own comfort zone and you know and and realize that we do have agency yes you know, we have yes. our own free will and we're 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 doing these explorations of our own free will right mm-hmm. so okay well this was a very interesting conversation <laughs> <laughs> we we went so many different places. I, I love it. <laughs> I loved it too. And you know, I mean, I if you ever want to have me back to discuss something, you know. Oh yeah, because taller. we are. <laughs> I'm bo- not too far away. I'm in Italy. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're you're the closest person to me that I interviewed. Oh wow. Yeah. Well, I I feel honored. You know, like. Yeah. We we at least share the Adri- Adriatic Sea. 
We do. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, it's got great UFO stories and folklore and really wonderful things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I know Croatia has a lot of UFO stuff if you're interested in, into looking into that. And it's very close yeah. to you. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I know that there were, especially in the 1970s, there was a UFO wave in the Adriatic mm -hmm. that remains somewhat unexplainable to this day. Like people, and then in the, uh, you know, in the Sibyllini Mountains, which are along the, the more central point of the Adriatic here in Italy, um, they too have a rich folklore and history of divination and con. Uh, you know, conjuration, pilgrimage, and strange lights, and all sorts of weird stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to do a whole show just on that. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, do, does your husband help you with understanding this folklore? Uh, because he is a scientist, he's an astronomer. Yeah. He's an astrophysicist. He's also an electronic musician. So, he's kind of like he's one of those people that are gifted with being able to utilize both the creative and the scientific. Mm -hmm. So, but yeah, he has helped me with the folklore aspects of it because, you know, he's this is where he's from and he's told me interesting stories and things that were related to him by his nonas and, you know, and, and just folklore from the region, the, the Marzipagel and other interesting things. Plus, he's also like has this keen interest in UFOs and he's even investigated crop circles and things in Italy. So he's he's very open minded to this, these things for a scientist. Oh, wow. We, we could dedicate a whole episode just talking about crop circles and the accounts of hoaxers ritualistically planning to hoax a crop circle and then conjuring actual weird stuff. Absolutely, because it's, I like the term temporary temple. I've heard that somewhere before. I didn't coin it. Someone else did. But I find it's very apt because, yeah, I believe that other than the very crude sort of the, the original, what they'd call the saucer nests, they were just little circles in the ground the rest of this is all hoaxed or, or man-made mm -hmm. but yet people do experience all sorts of strange things and 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 all sorts of strange things go on in the crop circles too yes um, yes yeah. and that goes into how hoaxing can actually instigate and maybe bait real paranormal phenomena so this yeah. is something I wanted to bring up to you, and I just now remembered. I did a whole episode about the Selbyville Swamp Monster. So mm -hmm. in 1964, a resident of Selbyville, Delaware, dressed up as a Bigfoot thing and was, you know, walking across a highway and scaring people in their cars. Yeah. And he was doing this for a few months until the people, you know, gathered up and tried to shoot him. <laughs> Oh, dear. I was going to say, I'm surprised he wasn't shot. Yes. So he, he stopped doing this because people were actually hunting him down. They were even like throwing dead chickens at him. Mm -hmm. So he stopped doing this. But for decades, even after he stopped, people would still report seeing the monster. Of course they did, because there was a, a an Gregor Tulpa-like thing that was created out of this. And I, um, I, I can tell you that from my years of doing the spook light research, okay, just we could do a whole show just on spook light research. <laughs> One of the places I investigated and I spent about two years was a, it was called Ghost Road. It has an actual road, the Mississaugas Trail in uh, Southern Ontario in Canada. And there is a whole folklore surrounding this place about a, a motorcyclist who was killed at the cross section of this road. And uh, since he's died there, this light appears. So I had originally gone out there in like 1999, I think it was like way, way back when and parked in a car and, 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 and went to go see the light and, and we saw lights, but they were something else. They, 
I think it was genuine UFO. But anyway, that's another long, long story. Yes. But to make a longer story short, uh, what I found is that in places like this, you can find a mundane explanation for some of what's going on. Okay, for instance, like you, you said, the guy was dressing up like a Bigfoot and trying to scare people. However, what I find in these locations is you can have a mixed bag of the mundane with hoaxing, but also very real phenomena. And even once you explain away the the, the, the hoaxing part or the, the mundane part, there's something that's imprinted on the land, I, I would say, itself. Yes. And it keeps replaying these things. There's another place in Ontario that is called the Blue Ghost Tunnel. And it was even featured in a couple of television programs. And I was like chuckling about this because I literally found out that, okay, back in the day, a guy was trying to go to this other haunted tunnel and he took the wrong turn on the road or whatever and he ended up in this place and he had some strange experiences about it and he started writing about it on the internet and then he gave directions and it was a completely different place but people started having experiences there and mm -hmm. then it just snowballed into like this this television show saying that this was like 700 feet into hell or whatever and all this kind of stuff and i'm watching this and i'm thinking to myself okay this seems to have come about from a, 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 a mistaken location of a ghost hunter, but it's now morphed into something else. And people are having real paranormal experiences in this place. So getting back to your point of hoaxing in that, it does absolutely, it can, especially if you have many different people coming with their expectations to these locations, create actual paranormal sigh, whatever you want to call it, yes. strange, deep, weird stuff. <laughs> You're just yeah. opening cans of worms and we, we'd be talking now for four hours if we go yeah. down all these roads. But like, <laughs> I know that you love the Bell Witch stuff. I love the Bell Witch stuff. Yes. And I and want to do a an analysis of that next. I, I just, I love it. <laughs> so I have this idea. Maybe the family was poisoning, you know, that father and mm -hmm. uh, hoaxing the whole story of the Bell Witch. Mm -hmm. To have, you know, so someone to blame for the death. Yep. But the hoax became a mythology and now instigated so many people to, to perpetuate the mythology over and over again. And now we have an egregore of a bell witch thing. Oh, that yeah. never even was a thing with the family who started it. I have a feeling that you're 100% correct on this and that the Bell Witch still exists today and people are having experiences with the Bell Witch in that cave. And, uh, and, and I think that you're probably on the money with that, that this is exactly what happened. And I think this is what happened too with the Fox sisters. Initially, they began, uh, you know, playing games or whatever. And then it became a whole thing and started mm -hmm. an entire spiritualist movement. But I think that amidst their games and playing and hoaxing and this and that and raps, real things started happening. I see Jeff the Mongoose as a very similar thing. Yeah, I do too. And I love Jeff the Mongoose. And I, I see that as maybe a family <laughs> bored out of their minds in the middle of nowhere, just, you know, playing a fun little family game with a, an imaginary friend of the family. I could even mm -hmm. argue that Indrid Cold is kind of the same thing. Um, mm hmm and then that becomes a real paranormal phenomenon where now the family no longer knows, is this an imaginary friend or is this a real poltergeist? Well, exactly, exactly. And that's why, too, we have to be very careful if we're going to be magically conjuring what, what type of thing we're going to conjure, you know, and make sure that we have some kind of control over it. I talk about um, in the deep weird about a Puss in Boots-like character that was conjured in Russia, uh, and they made a conscientious effort to make sure that 
that it was a, you know, a sweet kind of cat with little boots as opposed to, say, a, <laughs> a scary dragon or something that, you know, they couldn't easily control if it got out of hand. Yes, because introducing the symbology of the boots on the cat even unconsciously tells you, oh, this is a silly, absurd thing. So it's not scary and it can never just snowball into a terrifying thing because you will always exactly. perceive it as absurd. Exactly, exactly. Okay, so for the end, can you tell my listeners where they can find you and plug anything you want, even your, your I mean, the deep weird book that Jack is going to release? Yeah, well, that that's going to be my latest uh, a contribution to a publication will be Deep Weird, and that comes out January 31st. There's another book that I'm, I'm going to be a part of, which I wrote a chapter exploring uh, fairy faith and modern cinema with uh, my good friend Jack Kutchin. Um or Shaq, Josh, Josh Kitchen. <laughs> I'm not going to edit that out. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting tired here. <laughs> I need another cup of coffee. Take a drink of water. So yeah, no, I'm getting Jack confused with Josh. Too many J's, okay? So Jack <laughs> Hunter, Deep Weird. Josh Kitchen, The Fairy Faith Book. Uh, my book, Cosmic Witch, which, you know, Hey, if you're interested in witchcraft and conjuring and my own personal story, that's available in Amazon or you can get it through a local bookstore. There's also, yeah, my, my website, susandemeter.com. You can contact me through any of my socials. I love hearing people's personal experiences with this. You know, my heart is always with the UFOs, but I like hearing all sorts of 14 stories. So if, if you, if you want to contact or reach out, you know, I'm another deep weirdo. Like I, I don't put any judgment on people's experiences. Uh, yes. So I, I like to, I like to hear how, how people are engaging with the phenomena good and bad. Yeah. And I want to point out to my listeners that you are one of the minds behind the ufology tarot project, which I already yes. talked about with RPJ on my show. Yes. Yeah. That's exciting. Cause that we, we've just finished up really the first part of that project. And so I'm looking forward to getting, getting the next, the next part of the cards worked on, which will be the minor arcana and where we're exploring the, the UFO topic and the history of ufology through tarot, yes. which has been a lot of fun. We've conjured up a lot of strange stuff with that too. I don't know. Did, did Miguel tell you any of the weird stuff, the yes, yes. synchronicities? He, he, and Yes. I, I really mm -hmm. like the synchronicity with Joshua Kutchen uh, with the, I think the justice cards where he was called uh, to be yeah, on jury yeah. duty, on jury duty. Oh, the, the justice. Yeah. 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 yeah no, there was a whole bunch of strange synchronicities with the cards and so yeah yeah mm -hmm. i had miguel on and we talked about how he is essentially manifesting mm -hmm. stuff via his artistry because he's putting so much effort into the art yeah absolutely it's like it's it's been such a wonderful project to work on and just like our, our group like it really it helped me a lot on a personal level as we went through pandemic in that just to have our our weekly salon meetings and and discuss the deep weird and and tarot and and all this stuff that i love um yes it was really bonding and very very good and very beneficial for for that strange time that we've all just lived through <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for doing this. I am very glad that we talked about all of these different things that we needed to cram into what a, an hour and a half of an episode. Yeah. But like I said, if you ever want to talk about something else, you want yes. to expand on any of these topics, um, I'll be happy to come back. Oh, I I am so into conjuring, <laughs> into hoax as uh, instigating real phenomena, into symbology, and I know you're mm -hmm. all about that. So there's so yeah. much we can talk about. Absolutely. 
Yes. Thanks so much again. No problem. And for the listeners, I am going to link everything in the show notes, all of the books mentioned, and I'm going to try and put this out after the Jack Hunter deep weird book comes out. So go in the link in the episode description and try to grab a copy of it. And until next time, Susan, thank you for doing this and we'll be chatting very soon, I hope. Yeah. Ciao, ciao for now. Ciao, ciao for now.